Hi, I'm Ravi Agrawal, Editor-in-Chief of Foreign Policy Magazine. Welcome to Global Reboot. This is a show where we examine one big global problem every week and look at ways to solve it. Today, we're examining how to fix democracy. Experts say we're in a democratic recession. It's a fancy way of saying democracy is backsliding in many parts of the world. There's evidence to back this up. Freedom House, a non-profit organization that tracks these things, has found a decline in the number of democracies in each of the last 15 years. The backsliding is evident pretty much everywhere. In the United States, of course, the world's oldest democracy endured its first violent transition of power in January 2021. Or consider the rise of so-called strongman leaders around the world in Hungary, in Belarus, in Turkey, in Brazil, even in India, the world's largest democracy. Norms are being eroded. Leaders are more emboldened to act with impunity. And the people feel more powerless than they have in a long time. What can be done to fix this? Many scholars have ideas on this issue, of course, but one person who has what I think are the most inspiring solutions is Hélène Landemont, a French scholar at Yale University. In her book, Open Democracy, she outlines how democracy as we practice it is not real democracy for the people and by the people. Instead, it's representative democracy. The solution, then, says Landemore, is more people power. Get average citizens involved in decision-making. It sounds radical, but it is, in fact, something that is already working in many parts of the world. I'm not going to give more away. You'll want to hear it from Landemore herself. She is smart, frank, and inspiring. You might disagree with her ideas, but at the very least, they are worth reckoning with. As always, Global Reboot is brought to you in partnership with the Doha Forum. Leave us your comments or feedback. We'd love to hear from you. Rate the show. Let's dive in now. So I thought we could begin with the issue that's been most in the news this year, Russia's war in Ukraine. Now, obviously, Russian President Vladimir Putin has made clear that he doesn't even think Ukraine should exist. But Ukraine has put up an astounding fight, not only for its own land, but also for democracy, for the idea of rules and norms. What do you think this does for the idea of democracy around the world? Well, I think it does a good thing, which is to remind us how important democracy is and how fragile it is and uh, how we should not take it for granted. And uh, yes, it's not going very well in, in uh, you know, so-called advanced democracies uh, or other democracies, but at least we have basic rights. We have uh, rule of law. We have majoritarian rules, more or less. And all of a sudden you realize, well, this, this can be taken away very quickly. So I think that's what it does. What it does too, which is less good, I think, is that it um, puts us on the defensive. And when we're on the defensive, we tend to be very conservative about what we uh, call democracy. And I fear that we're now going to uh, be back to a, a very minimal conception of what democracy is about. You know, basic rights, voting, freedom of speech, uh, journalists' freedom, freedom of the press, freedom of association, things like that. By that, that's actually, uh, I'm, I'm tempted to say, a bare minimum. It's not really quite yet what I call rule of the people, by the people, for the people. That, that's a much more demanding ideal, but we don't have the luxury to even like want more right now. Right. 
you know, one of the strange things about the world's response to the war in Ukraine is that on the one hand, we've seen the West really come together and be united in terms of how it wants to sanction Russia. I say this, of course, even though, you know, the West hasn't stopped, or at least Europe hasn't stopped oil purchases from Russia. But but that aside, it has tried to sanction Russia. But much of the rest, the rest of the world, so large democracies like India, um, or even some smaller ones in South Asia, Southeast Asia, parts of Africa, have withheld from even condemning Russia. And in fact, countries like India have accelerated their purchases of Russian oil. Um, what do you think all of that says about the ideal of democracy or even the attempts that the United States has been trying to make to align democracies against autocracies? Yes, well, the problem is that, you know, uh, the, the West has perhaps um, a credibility issue uh, with the rest of the world because we've been very good at uh, pretending to be the leaders of the free world while, you know, accruing all the advantages of, of uh, you know, of, of the geopolitical order and, and not being particularly generous. So I think I understand why some countries are think they don't want to be part of this. They don't want to be part of this sort of a West versus Russia clash. And uh, Biden organized this democracy summit, which was a year after the capital was invaded. It's just a little strange for the U.S. to now take the mantle of, you know, being the, the, the leader of the, of the democratic world, the free world again, after in fact being the subject of a, of a quasi-coup. So I think, yes, it's it's a sense of hi the hypocrisy of the West. And it's really um, sobering, really, to see the state of the world at this stage. We've, we've sort of uh, backpedaled in some ways. Mm. I thought I would pick your brain a little bit on why democracy is struggling. Why, why are we here? Well, I think there are many reasons, some of them having to do with uh, the sort of hyper-globalization of the last 30 years. So it's, it's been a little tough to maintain a sense of unity in countries where you have like losers of globalization versus winners of globalization. But I think for me, I've become convinced that there's a sort of design flaw. And that design flaw comes from the belief that in order to have a smart group, you need to have very smart people in it. When in fact, I think the collective intelligence of a group is also largely a function of its um, group properties. And one of them is uh, cognitive diversity, the, the, the fact of being able to see problems and issues from very different angles, building on different life lived experiences, uh, using different categorizations. And we've really sampled the population in a very skewed way. So we've empowered white male from a very, you know, wealthy socioeconomic backgrounds. And sure enough, when they're confronted to decisions that are going to affect, for example, rural uh, working class, they, they just don't get what it's going to do to them. And to me, for example, that's what explains the, the Yellow Vest movement in France. Mm. The fact that the parliament in France or the government in France generally doesn't represent an entire fraction of the population, the Yellow Vest. And because they don't feel represented, the laws that apply to them are profoundly unjust. And even symbolically, they, they put on those yellow vests to be seen because they are not seen, because they are not represented in the current system. So, so my, my view is like fundamentally, we need to rethink democratic representation and what we mean by it. We've meant by it for 250 years 
electoral representation, but elections is on the basis of human choice, which tends to go for a certain type of notables, people with education, charisma, uh, money connections. And I think that's a real problem. I'm curious where you think the rise of strongman leaders fits into these trends that you're describing. And I'm thinking of uh, people like Duterte in the Philippines, who's uh, obviously now no longer in power, Viktor Orban in Hungary, Narendra Modi in India, Erdogan in Turkey. And of course, there was Donald Trump in the United States. What What is the appeal of these strongman leaders who, on the one hand, win elections, but on the other hand, they tend to espouse uh, policies or sentiments that in some form can be anti-democratic and certainly illiberal? Yes, well, it's a very, it's a very difficult question. I think my interpretation of that trend is that because electoral democracy is so flawed and ends up producing policies that leave most people unsatisfied, there's a growing frustration towards this you know, maybe we'd be better off with, you know, a strong man, a strong authoritarian figure that would cut through all the red tape, all the, all the you know, machinery of, of electoral politics and would deliver results. I hope that we can counter that by offering an alternative vision, which is to say, look, we need to democratize the current system, we need to open it up to ordinary citizens to make it capable of delivering good policies, policies that do not just serve the rich, do not serve people who are perceived as global elite and the, the winners of, of globalization, but really all of us and shape policies in a, in a way that generates less frustration. This is the dream scenario, basically. And I guess, you know, to fulfill the, the reboot part of this show, Global Reboot, let me put that to you. So how do we put in place real people power in the hands of people? In other words, how do we reboot democracy? There are two things. One, you have to have a, a clear picture of what you want to achieve. And then there's the secondary question of how do you get from here to there? So the clear picture, I personally have a, a vision for it, which I call open democracy. And it's a democracy in which we focus much less on elections and a lot more on citizens' assemblies and referenda. So instead of having an assembly of elected officials who manage to get re-elected over time and then they swing left or swing right and then we've got all this partisan bickering and nothing gets done if you take the American Congress, you'd have a succession of frequently rotated assemblies of randomly selected citizens who'd offer a set of proposals, policies, set an agenda, and then regularly you'd have a connection to the larger public through campaigns around referenda questions. Like, do you approve of this particularly bold proposal to make, I don't know, um, housing renovation mandatory by 2030, which is, for example, one of the proposals that came out of the French Citizens' Convention for Climate? So that's my vision for, you know, a very different kind of democracy where we would all have a, an equal chance of being really in the position of deciding the laws of a country in a deliberative process that's respectful, that builds consensus, that's kind of like very different from what we have in, in current politics. This does sound great in, in theory, but I guess, you know, a question that immediately will crop up for all of our listeners is how does this work? And especially given that so much of politics and decision making and policy making 
can involve expertise or can involve, you know, spending a lot of time studying documents or plans? How do you get around that? That's a very good question. So first, you have to remember that current uh, lawmakers are not spending that much time learning stuff. They are spending a lot of time <laughs> campaigning, raising funds, doing extremely superficial kind of politicking. And the real work is actually done in uh, by experts to whom they outsource the work right. and then they, or lobbyists who provide a lot of the actual legal material in, in the American Congress, for example. So it's not as if, you know, uh, a group of citizens would, would necessarily be so much more naive or so much less capable of learning things. And second, of course, you'd still need to have a, an important role for experts. But the way to organize the relationship between experts and citizens needs to maintain the citizens in the authoritative position. So I always have this phrase of, you know, uh, keeping the, the experts on tap, but not on top. And I think that if you want a good model of how it's, it's been done, it, actually, the French Citizen Convention on Climate was actually a decent example of how you can do that. Yeah, I was going to ask you, because that's such a great real life example of a citizens assembly, you know, in practice. Talk us through how that worked. So in response to the Yellow Vest movements, President Macron convened a citizens convention of 150 randomly selected citizens tasked with the you know, ambitious uh, goal of curbing greenhouse gas emissions. So that was an enormous task, very technical as well. So of course, the 150 randomly selected citizens were never going to be able to solve it by themselves. They needed support. So about 130 experts from all kinds of you know, fields were enrolled to speak to the citizens, to provide them with material, presentation, PowerPoints, all kinds of things, to answer their questions. They had speed dating sessions with all kinds of experts. So truly, in my view, what happened is that the citizens were leading the process. They took charge. Mm. They used the input of the experts, the recommendations. Sometimes they went against their advice, for example, on the carbon tax. So the carbon tax is pretty much what ignited the Yellow Vest movement. Mm -hmm. So, of course, this was a very sensitive sort of policy. And the 150 decided that there were other solutions than a carbon tax because a carbon tax is unfair. It punishes the people who live away from the center, who can't afford to you know, have the sort of lifestyle where you bike to work or you take the public transportation. Mm -hmm. So they thought, no, we're not going to do the carbon tax. Uh, that triggered a social movement in France. We're just going to do 149 other things. And that's what they did. And speaking of outcomes, what happened then with this example of a citizens assembly in France that assembled, consulted experts, and then they presented uh, a set of proposals to the government? So what happened is that uh, initially, President Macron had promised that the proposals would be put to direct parliamentary debate with no filter. Now, there's a consensus that this was probably a, a mistake to make such a promise because constitutionally, of course, the proposals had to go all kinds of filters, constitutional filters, uh, parliamentary filters, etc., etc. So in the end, what came out was a bill, a climate bill, that was a, a very, very diluted version of what the citizens had wanted. Mm -hmm. So the critics say, oh, look, this was participation washing, um, my vision now is a lot more um, positive than at the time. I also felt like there was a sort of betrayal of the convention. But in fact, it still managed to produce the most ambitious climate bill to date. And the effects do not stop there. I think it's triggered a national conversation around climate uh, change that I think was not really there yet. It had an impact on a lot of people, including myself. And so what you're saying then 
is that even though the outcome in this particular case of a citizens' assembly was not that the citizens were fully listened to, but even then, as a scholar of democracy, you think this was a good thing because the people were consulted. And it seems like from what you're saying, the executive, uh, the legislature, and the, the people seem like they're happier with more participation. Yes, I think there's a, there's a, I mean, I think some people on the right, which is traditionally a lot more conservative and opposed to this kind of participatory experiments, acknowledge that the convention was a good idea, that it wasn't manipulated by, by Macron and that we should do it more. Another discussion that's taking place in France right now is whether we shouldn't have something even more radical, a citizens' convention on democratic renewal. Basically, a, a citizens' convention that would have to rethink the whole French constitution, right? I mean, or at least rethink the way power is distributed in the Fifth Republic. Because I think everyone agrees that it's way too top-heavy, mm. that the executive has too much power, that the parliament is too weak, that the bureaucracy is also too powerful, that there are, there's a lot of things that, that just don't work anymore. This Our constitution, you know, the, the Fifth Republic was basically designed for the personality larger-than-life personality of de Gaulle. So it's it's not modern. It's not adapted to a truly mature, democratic people where citizens have things to say and want to be listened to. Mm. There are a lot of people, in, you know, including myself, who are pushing for the kind of change that I think a lot of us want, something that goes back to citizens and does away without this, like, always male, always charismatic and slightly um, hubristic and potentially despotic figures. So... It's, it would be a change of, of um, a radical change of foundations of the French Republic. And the thing is, irrespective of the policies that come out of these kinds of movements, one offshoot is that there's more trust because there's more transparency. And that in and of itself is a good thing. Yes, there's more trust and more hope. The transformation that people who have participated in these assemblies undergo is that they come out with a lot more trust in their fellow citizens, a lot more hope in the future, and they become motivated to participate again. Some of them actually decided to run for elections. They just feel motivated. They start believing again that you can achieve change and that you can do good things. And so that's quite remarkable. In my view, the next step would be to institutionalize them. So instead of convening them in an ad hoc fashion on the whim of a president or a prime minister, you could just create them and make them permanent. Then that, that would, I think that would normalize the presence of ordinary citizens at the highest level of policy and lawmaking. It would also reassure elected officials that, you know, this is... I think to me it's competition, but they, you know, mm. we can also claim that this is purely complementary and it's not going to take away any of their legitimacy and any of their power. I think we have to find an, equilibri an equilibrium between those different forms of democratic representation. Now, obviously, we've been talking about France for a while and French politics is always so interesting uh, in terms of, you know, the spectrum of left to right. But let me ask you this, where else in the world are people discussing ideas such as yours, the ideas of open democracy, citizens' assemblies? Is this something that can be spread far and wide? I actually think it can because the state of, of uh, the crisis we're in is, is so deep that people everywhere are, are looking for solutions. And why not, why not try that one? You know, it sounds good on paper. It has a lot of evidence uh, behind it. At this point, there are over 600 
cases wow. documented. So I think there are lots of things happening. Uh, what's really interesting to me is that now it's starting to happen outside of Western Europe. So you've got very interesting things happening in Chile, for example. They are trying all kinds of things uh, that include uh, random selection. They've elected an assembly of constitution makers, pretty much. And they've run some uh, deliberative polls on healthcare. They, they, it's a really interesting place right now. I see these ideas popping up everywhere. In a sense, one of the worries I would have is that why would powerful elected leaders, strong men leaders, why would they want to give up some of the powers they have to people? I mean, because ultimately what we've been talking about is how democracy as we see it, as we practice it, isn't real democracy. And that's the case for a reason, because, you know, part of, you know, the post-1990s movement of democratization was the rise of the liberal democracies, where countries were incentivized to appear democratic, but not really practice true democracy. Why would that change? It's not uniform. You have a lot of people who have vested interests in keeping the system more or less as it is. But I think there are a number of people who realize the system is broken, who are idealists, who are elected officials and know that there's something that they are missing about, you know, why are they so unliked? Why is their legitimacy so diminished? They don't understand it. And, and if you provide them with an answer, well, it's because you don't think and look enough like the people you claim to represent. I think those can be convinced to try um, citizens' assemblies that will bring knowledge that they don't have and an understanding that they don't have. And then you have people also who have fear, who, have, who are just afraid. I think, you know, the, the reason why Macron went for the deliberative uh, great national debate and then the Convention for Climate is because he went through a moment of pure fear in, in November 2018 I mean, this was as close to civil war as I've ever seen France. This was really, really bad. And at some point you're like, well, it's going to be brutal repression or we need to try something else. So they tried deliberation. You know, Ellen, I'm always left so hopeful when I speak with you, even though the world seems full of problems. Um, what about the role of young people? Um, because it strikes me that... You know, when you look around the world, young people seem to be entering a world in which climate change uh, seems worse than it's ever been. And there's finally an acceptance and a realization that this is the real crisis of our lifetimes, of our existence. Do you get the sense that if crises really force us to, to do the right thing, that we're finally at a moment where demographically with young people, with the crises we're presented with, we might finally see real reforms in democracy? Yes, and that's why I would really hope that, um, you know, mini-publics would speed that up because in mini-publics you have, by default, the proportion of youth that you have in the larger country. And it's quite crucial because they don't have stocks that can be ruined by, you know, too aggressive policies on climate change. They don't have housing. They have very little hope of accessing housing and, and, and a sort of normal middle-class family style at this point because the way we've organized society and the economy is very unfair. And so it's all for the old. And the youth really are the only ones who have a clear vision of, of the, the dangers of climate change and how urgent it is to address the issue. And they're willing to go for a much more radical solution than I think older, more comfortable um, generations are. In part because they have nothing to lose. Ellen Landemore, thank you so much for your time. 
Thank you, Ravi. It was a pleasure. And that was Ellen Landemore, a professor at Yale and the author of the book Open Democracy. You can, of course, read more from her on foreignpolicy.com. Next week, will disruptive world events offer the opportunity to reboot human rights? The power of people realizing their rights, questioning the decisions of their own governments, requiring of their own governments to uphold their own legal obligations. For many, let's say, less than competent governments is a threat. And the power of human rights is immense. I'm joined by peace advocate and former commissioner for human rights at the United Nations, His Royal Highness Prince Zaid Rad Al Hussein. That is next week on Global Reboot. Our podcast is a partnership between Foreign Policy and Doha Forum. Our production staff includes Rosie Julin, Dan Efron, and Anissa Pazeshki. If you like what you're hearing, please consider leaving a review and subscribe on Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're interested in smart geopolitical news and analysis from around the world, subscribe to Foreign Policy. Global Reboot listeners can save 15% on access. Go to foreignpolicy.com slash subscribe and to the code reboot at checkout to claim this offer. Thank you for listening. I'm Ravi Agrawal. See you next week.